Open your Bibles to the book of Romans. In the New Testament, we're going to be landing in Romans chapter 13. We ended in verse 7 last week, and today we're going to pick up in Romans 13, verse 8. What a great book of the Bible this is. Romans 13 is where we're landing today, but this, this whole series, there's been things that have just jumped out to me of like, wow, this is our God. This is who we get to worship. This is who we get to serve in our daily lives. Uh, there's many that would say, if I could have one book of the Bible uh, on a deserted island, if something was possible like that, I would choose the book of Romans because it's so rich, packed with so many just things about God and his character, his attributes. So today, we get to continue in Romans 13, looking at verse 8. And this is what it says. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this, saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so this word, this glorious gospel found in Romans 13, intersects with our life here in the summer of 2014 in a supernatural way to change us and to transform us. And, and so that's the prayer even today, that you will walk away transformed by God's word that endures forever. As we look at this together. One of the things it talks about in this just brief passage is it talks about debt. And I know that many of you woke up this morning and got ready to come here to church and you're like, I really hope that whoever teaches talks about debt. That's, that's my like, hopeful thing that they're going to talk about today. I mean, it's it's kind of awkward at times to talk about debt because we've all experienced it or are experiencing it. I mean, we live in a culture that has unprecedented debt. I mean, all I have to say is college loans. And about two-thirds of us, our blood pressure just begins to go up. There's credit card loans. There's mortgage debt. There's car loan debt. There is soda debt. Yes, soda debt. Have you heard of this new term? I've experienced it personally. Uh, a couple years ago, me and Marie uh, were invited by one of the nonprofits that we're connected to to go to their fundraiser. And their fundraiser was at this yacht club in Newport Beach because that's how we obviously roll. And so we were down at this yacht club experiencing this fundraiser. And the first 30 minutes or so is just like an appetizer time before you go in for the main dinner. And so we're just mingling outside of this yacht club. And you've been in these like, situations at weddings and stuff where like there's a server and they're coming around and they have plates of drinks and hors d'oeuvres. And so you take one. And so me and Maria are just mingling outside of there and we get separated. And then I find myself alone because I'm really, really cool. And um, so I'm alone at this yacht club, and a waiter walks by, and he goes, Sir, would you like a drink? And I said, Yeah, yeah, I'd like something. Um, can I have a Coke? Um, what were you thinking I was going to say? I don't know. But I said, I will have a Coke. And, uh, and so he went, and he got a Coke, and he brought it back, and he hands it to me, and without even thinking, I'm thirsty, and I grab it and just take a sip. And as I'm pulling the glass away from my mouth, he goes, And that will be $2. And I was like, what? Um, I'm, I'm a pastor. I don't, I don't have $2 on me. And, and he looks at me 
And I look at him, and there's just this awkward silence that exists between the two of us in this crowded courtyard of a yacht club. And I'm thinking through different options in my mind. Okay, what could I do here? I'm looking for Marie. Where's Marie? Can't find her. Um, probably the best option I could think of at that moment was run. Just, just run. Just run. There's a lot of people here. He'll never see me again. I'm just going to run. And, uh, but I, I stayed there, embraced the awkwardness. And then finally he looked at me and he's like, you know what? Don't worry about it. And like rolled his eyes and then walked away. And so I stood there in debt. Whether it's $2 of debt or $200 of debt or $200,000 of debt, there's something about debt that's not natural for us, right? It doesn't make us feel comfortable. And so as we think through, what does the Bible say about debt? This first verse says, owe nothing to anyone. Romans 13, 8, owe nothing to anyone. What exactly does this mean? Is the Bible saying that we should never borrow anything? Should we never financially borrow? Should we never materially borrow? Should we never even borrow a rake from our neighbor's garage? Like, what is exactly the scripture saying here? Well, I believe that it's not saying a universal principle that we should, we should never borrow. And that's because when you look at other places in the Bible, you see that God assumes that we're going to lend and we're going to borrow. Like in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says, if there is a poor man with you, you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need and whatever he lacks. If you can go to the next slide, you can see that for yourself. Romans 15. I mean, Deuteronomy 15. Are you there? Can you, can you advance? Can you advance? And then in the Gospel of Luke, that's the Old Testament, in the Gospel of Luke and the New Testament, Jesus says the same thing when he says in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, he says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And so I don't think there's a universal principle that we should never borrow. But there is some stipulations on our borrowing. And Proverbs says, if you can go to the next slide here, in chapter 22, verse 7, it says, The rich rule over the poor. And the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And so there's this warning from the scriptures that although we are allowed to borrow as Christians following Jesus Christ, there's some danger in it because we're called to be slaves to serve Jesus Christ. Yet our debt can get in the way. Oh, thanks. Little uh, clicker. Uh, yet our debt can get in the way of serving who we're called to serve, which is, which is Jesus. And so there's a danger, a warning on that. And so I'm not a really bright financial guy, as you can tell from my $2 Coke at the Yacht Club. I don't really understand what negative amortization means or uh, origination fees or compound interest. These things are foreign to me <laughs> as a pastor. But I think there's just two basic simple principles that should guide our finances as followers of Jesus Christ. And I believe that they're biblical. And they're this, is one, don't borrow more money than you can honestly repay. As we consider what to invest in, what to spend our money in. And this is hard. We live in Orange County, the place with the most expensive real estate in probably the world. But I think this is a good principle to think through. 
Don't borrow more than we can honestly repay. And then secondly, just a simple rule, and I think it comes from the scriptures, is pay what you owe when you owe it. And I don't mean to dumb this down, but I think it's important for us. Just two basic principles. Let's live our Christian lives following Jesus, wanting not to serve our debt, but to serve our master, Jesus. Here's some good things to keep in mind. We have a friend here at the church. He's on our staff, Ray Patera. And uh, Ray is one of his main jobs here at the church is just to care for each of us in our finances as we live our lives and we consider what to spend, what to be generous with, what to cut out. Ray is here just to pastor and shepherd us in that process. And you see his number and his email here on the screen. I'd encourage you even just to jot that down in this moment. If you're at a place where even these two principles of don't, don't borrow more than I can repay honestly and pay what I owe when I owe it, if these things are hard for you, if it's a challenge, if you're in a difficult spot right now, or if you just want to be a more generous person with what God's given you, and I would challenge you to talk to Ray. He'd be such a great person to come alongside even this summer and help you reorganize some stuff. And so there's this principle as we look at debt. Don't occur debt. Be careful with debt warning about debt. And then the verse continues here in verse 8. It says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. So it says, owe nothing to anyone but love one another. What exactly does that mean? Well, the Bible is saying here, there is a good kind of debt. There is a debt that we should build up, that we should occur. We should owe one another love. We should have a debt of love towards one another. And the question is, well, who is the one another in this passage? And I think it, it hits a couple different people and, and personalities. One, this one another is fellow Christians. Just a chapter earlier in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And so there's this idea that we are called as Christians to owe a debt of love to fellow followers and believers in Jesus Christ. But I think this passage doesn't just stop here in Romans 13 when it says, love one another, have a debt of love towards one another. I think this debt is not only to fellow Christians, but it's also geographically to our next door neighbors. It's those that live next to us and behind us and under us or over us believe we're called to owe a debt of love to our geographical neighbors. I read a story of some pastors in Colorado who gathered together and went to the mayor of their city. And they went in the mayor's office and they said, Mayor, we represent several churches here in this city. We just want to be pastors and churches that bless this city. Like, what would you suggest? How could we bless this city? And the mayor looks at him and goes... Do you honestly want to know my answer? And they go, yeah, yeah, we're here to hear what you have to say. And he said, well, if people in the city would just love each other better and would love their next door neighbor better, this city would be radically transformed. If they would simply take that step to, to love the person that lives next to them. And he said, and you know what? Honestly, I don't see any difference between how Christians neighbor and how non-Christians neighbor. And these pastors were just humbled and convicted by this mayor's response. It blew their mind because they're like, uh, there, there's actually something that's pretty profound in our text that tells us to love our neighbor. Maybe we've been overlooking that that even includes our geographical 
neighbor. We're called to love those that live next door to us. But even expanding the circle, if you will, we're called to love and owe a debt of love to those that have and give us an open door. So not just those next door, but those that give us an open door. And what I mean by this is people that you have relationships with. People that open their door to you, whether they're family or friends or coworkers. You're in a daily relationship with them. You see them often. So this is part of the group that we should love, that we should owe a debt of love to. So it's fellow Christians. It's people who geographically live near us. It's those that open their door in relationship to us. And then here's a fourth category, and third on this slide, is that believe as Christians we're called to show a debt of love, to owe a debt of love to the broken door. Those that live behind the brokenness of their circumstances, their experiences, their lives. They could be the overlooked. They could be those that need mercy, that have a great need. Jesus in the Gospels gives this beautiful story. Many of you know it. It's in Luke chapter 10 of the Good Samaritan. And he basically responds to this lawyer who approaches him, who says, God, who is my neighbor? Or he says, teacher, who is my neighbor? And Jesus boils it down to, your neighbor is one who has a need. When you see the need of your neighbor, or when you see the need of a hurting and broken person, you're to call them your neighbor and owe a debt of love to them. That's a great challenge for us. As we consider who our neighbors are, who are the one another's of our lives. I think as we think through this, one of the things we need to do is we need to change how we keep score. There's a scoreboard in each of our minds of how we interact with other people, whether they're people that are next door, whether they're people that give us an open door, whether they're people that live behind a broken door, whether they're fellow Christians. We're constantly keeping score. We're thinking and even maybe saying sometimes in our lives, well, we've invited them over the last three times and they never invite us over. Keeping score, three zero. <laughs> um, I'm always the one that says sorry. How come they never say they're sorry? Keeping score. I always like their Instagram posts. They never like my Instagram stuff. Keeping score. The last time I was generous, I was taken advantage of. I'm, I'm not going to be generous to this person with a need. Keeping score. We're constantly keeping relational score. All of us do it. A couple of weeks ago, uh, me and one of my sons were playing wiffle ball. You know what wiffle ball is? Like the plastic ball with holes in it, like baseball. We're playing that in the front yard. My son's getting to the age where he's getting bigger, and he's hitting the ball farther. Um, that was a little subtle brag I put in there. Um, but uh, he hit the ball farther, and he hit our neighbor's truck, their Ford F-150. He hits it. Our neighbor comes bolting out of her house, and she says, Matt, that's the third time since you've been out here that you've hit my car with the ball. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm not being sensitive to that. I wasn't even thinking. We're just having fun. It's just a plastic wiffle ball, but I get it. It's your truck. Um, and then she goes, and you know what? Your sprinklers in the back have been like shooting over the fence and they're hitting my garage and like that needs to stop. And I'm like, yeah, um, this is what I thought in my head. I'll just let you guys in what my thinking. All of a sudden this Rolodex popped up of like 
19 things that bug me about her. <laughs> you know? I'm like, well, you know what? How come you move all three of your cars at 5.30 every morning when you could simply rearrange your cars the night before and not have to wake us up every day? And I, sorry, that's just one out of like 19. And, and I'm not saying this. I'm wanting to say it. And the Holy Spirit and me are just like wrestling about this as she's telling me her grievances. And I went back into our house and I was just feeling conviction by God. I'm like, wow, Matt, whether you realize it or not, you're keeping score on her. You're keeping score on everybody. There's this relational game that you're playing. You're winning or you're losing. And I believe that here in Romans, it's telling us that not that we shouldn't keep score, but that we should change the way we keep score. Do you follow that? So rather than say, well, I've done three things, they've done nothing, we should change the way we keep score and we should say, we owe them a debt. We owe them a debt of love and all that we do. That's so countercultural to how we live, though, isn't it? My son, the wiffle ball player, he played his first season of Little League this year, and it was coach rookie ball pitch. And uh, how it works in this Little League here in Santa Ana is that you don't keep score. And yet, it was hilarious to me that every single kid on the field knew the score of the game at any particular time, except for like that one kid like picking daisies like in the outfield on every team. But everyone else knew. It's just... That's natural for us to do that. It's, a, it's an unnatural way to change the scoreboard, if you will. But 1 Corinthians 13, you've heard it in different places. 1 Corinthians 13 says these beautiful words. It says, love keeps no record of right or wrongs. As followers of Jesus, we just have this different way we need to keep score. We look for opportunities to go into debt, to owe one another our neighbor love. And so what this means is that our love doesn't have limits. We don't stop loving people when we get to a certain love quotient, if you will. We don't just love those who love us back or who love us first. We're instead to be constantly loving one another, to giving them a best of our love. It's a continual action. It's never paid off. You know that feeling when you have a credit card? And you finally whittle it down, you get disciplined, you stop going to coffee as much, you cut cable, and then you pay off that credit card. And what a great feeling that is when like you go online and you look at the balance and it's like zero. And you're like, yes, I did it. Now I can go buy some more stuff, <laughs> you know, whatever it works. Um, how great would it be is if you think through the scoreboard of your life, that debt, you never pay it off when it comes to loving one another, to loving your neighbor. It just keeps occurring. And as you pull it up in your mind, you celebrate that it's getting deeper and deeper and you owe more and more to people because that's how Jesus has wired you and called you to live. And then it goes on, Romans 13, 8 continues in this next sentence. And it says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And this is honestly where this passage gets a little bit tricky for me. I've been wrestling with this sentence, this last sentence, all week. What does it mean that when we love our neighbor, when we have this debt of love towards our neighbor, that somehow that fulfills the law? Like, help me, God, understand what this means. And here's my best attempt at it. In Romans 13, 9, it explains it. 
It says, for this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And there's any other commandment summed up in saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, in our scriptures, if you have an English Bible here, we often capitalize words in the New Testament. And in our culture, what capitalized words means, like when you get an email with all caps, it means someone over 60 has just emailed you and they don't know how to use their cap thing. Or it means someone's yelling at you. But that's not what this is saying. It's not saying, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. Although maybe that's a good way to hear it. Um, But what it's doing is it's saying, it's showing you that this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. So when something's in all caps in your New Testament scriptures, it's letting you know that this is a direct quote from the Old Testament scriptures. And so Paul here in verse 9 is quoting from Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. He mentions four of the commandments here. And then you shall love your neighbor as yourself is from Leviticus chapter 19. It says those exact words. And then verse 10 of Romans 13 says this. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Again, wrestling with what does this mean, the fulfillment of the law? Let me give you just a quick history lesson of what the law was about. One of the first laws that that God gave his people was in the Garden of Eden. And when God told Adam and Eve, you can enjoy this garden, but don't eat from the tree of good and evil. This is my law to you. And as we know right off the bat in Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve do not obey this law. And as a result, sin enters the world and innocence is lost. And sin nature now becomes a part of every human's existence and reality. And then generations later, Moses is given formally these Ten Commandments. And he brings them down to the nation of Israel. And these commandments are given to the nation of Israel really for three reasons. Reason one, number one, is to help the people guide and interact with God in the midst of a fallen and sinful world. So the first four of the Ten Commandments govern and guide our relationship to God. They're vertical commandments between us and God. And then the second reason for the law, for these first initial Ten Commandments, is to guide how we interact with one another in a broken and sinful world. The six of the Ten Commandments, basically five through ten, govern our relationships with one another. They're mentioned here in Romans chapter 13. But there's a third reason that God gave his people the law. And that was to show them their desperation, their utter need for a Savior. Because... No one in a broken and sinful world can follow the law perfectly. And so it was to show us that we needed rescuing as lawbreakers. We needed someone to redeem us, to save us. We needed a Messiah. And that Messiah would come. That's what Romans is all about. That's why it's such an amazing book. These first 11 chapters of Romans, they show us how the law was inadequate for the people. The law led people towards condemnation. It was a tool that God used to show people their sin, to show people that in the hands of a holy God, they were condemned, condemned to hell. And then in Romans chapter 3, we see this passage where God's showing us that, again, looking back on the law, that it was to make us aware of our sin 
and the knowledge of our sin. And then Jesus enters the world and he lives the life that none of us could live. He lives a life that's blameless and innocent. Jesus is without sin. And these words in Matthew sum it up so well when he says in Matthew 5, 17, he says, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So Jesus fulfilled the laws. He met the requirements of the law. He took our place on the cross, dying not for himself, but dying for us who are guilty of being lawbreakers. And therefore, those that place their faith in Jesus Christ as the leader, the Lord of our lives, the Savior, the Rescuer, the Redeemer of our lives, those that place their faith in Jesus, which is so cool because there'll be some that even this week are sitting in your very seats that will come to VBS, kids who will make a decision to place their faith in Jesus in the next five days, maybe in the very seat that you're sitting in. When someone does that, their relationship to the law now changes. Rather than the law being a tool of condemnation, the law is now a tool of sanctification as it guides us towards the graciousness of God and towards obedience to Jesus Christ. So the nature of the law to the Christian completely changes once you are handed over to Jesus, once you become a new creation. Romans talks more about that in Romans chapter 7. We went over it a few months ago. It says, therefore, my brethren, you were also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So with this new relationship in mind, Romans 13 teaches us to love our neighbors, to get to the very heart of the law as the law is fulfilled in loving our neighbor, loving God one another. Jesus says in the Gospels in John chapter 15, says these beautiful words. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I loved you. And then you're using the commandments as a guide. You start seeing how that plays out. Because if I'm owing a debt of love to my neighbor, if I'm loving one another well, then I won't treat people as objects and be tempted into fall in to adultery. If I'm owing love to one another, if I'm loving my neighbor well, then there won't be room for hate in my heart and for it to come out in the action of murder, whether it's in action or even in thought. If I owe people love, then I will not be tempted to rob, to steal, to selfishly take from them, but instead I'll want to protect others and bless others. If I'm owing love to my neighbor, then I won't fall into covetousness. But instead, I'll rejoice when I see other people that are blessed. And this is the heart of love. This is the heart of the law. This is the heart of the lawgiver, which is Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so loving our neighbor will produce obedience to Jesus Christ, the gracious one, our Savior, our Redeemer. And then out of that, there's something really key here that we have to understand. And that is our motivation for obedience to Jesus. Our motivation, what drives us in the morning and throughout the day to owe a debt of love to others, to change the way the scoreboard's tallied. That motivation has to be 
the love that we personally and wonderfully receive from Jesus himself. As you sit here today, let me just give you even a moment. Are you in touch with how much God loves you? Do you get it? Right now, in this moment, do you understand how much God lovingly, wonderfully adores you, pursues you, thinks about you, cherishes you, embraces you? I was driving on Chapman Avenue this week. I'm thinking through Romans. And I just kind of had this moment of confession as I'm driving on Chapman through the 300 lights on Chapman Avenue. Like, God, I don't feel like I totally get your love right now. I'm worried about a bunch of things in life. I'm tempted to perform for you, God, and to, to hope that you say, like, attaboy, Matt, like, good job. Like, God, help me to understand and somehow fathom in the iceberg how much you love me, the tip of the iceberg of how much you love me. I'm just driving down Chapman, just having this moment with God. And I'm wondering if, as we think through, like, okay, I got to owe a debt of love to other people. Okay, not, don't want to do financial debt, but got to owe other people debt. Like, okay, this is another thing. Just walking out of here, like, sobered and so stressed out. No, no, no. It starts with just being in touch with embracing the love that God has for you as you live your life right now. This week we had some friends over, Steve and Shelly Davis, and we're watching our kids play in the backyard. And we're talking about our kids, and Steve says to, about his son Isaiah, he's like, Isaiah just makes me laugh so much. Like, he just cracks me up. And I'm watching Steve just look at his son and just love him. And this picture just even came to my mind. I'm like, that's God. Like, God's looking at us as followers of Jesus who've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. He's looking at us and he's just saying, I love him. That's my kid. That's my son. That's my daughter. I'm pleased by them. Not because of what they can do, not because of their performance, but because they're mine. I just think that's such a powerful thing to think through. Well, I was driving up Chapman this week, but it was a couple years ago. I went a little bit farther up Chapman to Irvine Park. Uh, You know where Irvine Park is? On the weekends, it's not a great place to go. It's packed. Weekdays, though, there's hardly anybody there. And so you can walk around um, and really just kind of experience some silence and solitude. And so I was up at Irvine Park just walking around and just talking to God. There's no one around. I'm kind of talking out loud. And I asked this of God. I said, God, are you pleased with me? Like, I'm this pastor at this church in Calvary, and I've made a lot of dumb decisions, and I, like, fail so many times, and like, but God, are you happy with how I'm pastoring at Calvary? I asked God this, walking around Irvine Park. And I heard God. It wasn't like a, on a wall or it wasn't like he spoke audibly, but I just heard this impression that felt like it's something I would never say. I felt like God told me, I love you. <laughs> I was like, well, no, no, that's not my question, God. <laughs> my question is, are you pleased with how I'm leading your people at Calvary. Are you pleased? I want to please you, God, in doing this position as a pastor, as a shepherd. Are you pleased with me, God? Like, tell me. Yes or no? That's all I need to know. I felt like God again. Matt, I love you. I love you. And this time, rather than be annoyed or frustrated at that, 
It just hit me. Wow, God, thank you. Thank you that that's how you feel. That you embrace me no matter what. That despite myself, you embrace and care for me and love me. If we are to live the Christian life and follow this gracious Jesus and owe a debt of love to fellow Christians, to people that are next door that keep tons of accounts about our sprinklers and wiffle balls, if we are to care for people who open their doors to us one day but then sometimes close them on us, if we are to owe a debt of love to those that are broken and messy and they spill it all over us, the only way we can do that without going crazy or just massively falling on our face is to understand how much we are loved by God. Romans 5.8 says it so beautifully. It says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans 8.35-39, you've heard it many times, but you need to hear it again. Romans 8.35-39 says this, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Loving your neighbor is motivated by understanding that you're personally and wonderfully loved by God. And then out of that, we can live out Romans 13, which says, Owe nothing to anyone except a debt of love. And as you love your neighbor, you're fulfilling the law because you're getting to the heart of the law, which is from the lawgiver, who is Jesus Christ, who graciously and wonderfully loves us. That's the message of Romans. That's the message of this little passage tucked in to chapter 13. It's so good. If you have your sermon notes, you can pull them out if you're not using them. It's okay. Pull them out now. And look on the back side of those notes. We've given you some primers. As you are motivated by the love of Jesus Christ, here's some primers this summer on how to owe a debt of love to those that are around you, to one another, to your neighbor. There's no rocket scientist on this. You could figure out any of these things on your own. But I'd love for you, even as we respond in worship in a moment, to look through this list and maybe the Spirit of God will point you towards something that you feel called to do. That, hey, here's an action step that I want to take. And in being motivated by the love of God, I want to owe love to one another through this way. And so I encourage you to take that, put it somewhere you'll be reminded of it, and let's live this out as believers in Jesus Christ. As we respond, we have the stations set up around the room. And there's a couple of things on the stations that I want to point out to you again if you're new. That is, we have communion on here. We have the bread and the juice. And these represent really two powerful things in the life of a Christian. 
The bread represents the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully God, and yet he was fully man. He was a human. He came into our world. He lived in the flesh. As I briefly mentioned, he was without sin. He was tempted but did not sin. Yet he can identify with us because he lived in our world. And his body was put on the cross and nailed to a tree for what we had done in being lawbreakers. And so the bread reminds us of the tremendous cost that God paid in sending his son into the world. And then the juice represents the blood of Jesus Christ. Scriptures say that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so the juice reminds us that Jesus shed his blood on the cross. And as the scriptures say, he died on that cross. But then he rose again on the third day. He conquered sin. He overcame death. We do not worship today a dead savior. We do not worship today just a historical figure. We worship an alive God whose name is Jesus. And so the juice reminds us that this alive God shed his blood for us and that whoever places their faith in Jesus is forgiven, not just for today, but for tomorrow and for the next day and for eternity. Once and for all, the blood of Jesus covers over our sins for breaking the law. Such good news. And then communion also reminds us that he's coming back. That one day Jesus will return and will come for the church and will take us with him and we'll live with him forever. If you're not a believer in Christ, I would ask that you don't approach communion, that this is something only for believers in Jesus Christ. If you want to become a believer in Jesus, today's the day to do it. Simply from your seat, make a prayer to God and say, God, I know that I've sinned against you. I know I've broken your laws. And I believe that you sent Jesus into this world to die for my sins and to raise again. And because of that, I trust in you, Jesus, once and for all. Just make that your prayer and then you can approach communion with joy and gladness knowing you're covered, you're forgiven. And then also on the stations is a bucket for offering. And again, thinking through the whole idea of a debt of love. Our goal in asking you to give at church is not to pull you into debt. (laughs) But our goal is to remind you that all belongs to God and that our money is an act of worship and how we use it. You're going to use your money to worship something. So make sure that you're worshiping and surrendering to Jesus with your finances. And so the buckets are there for you to do that as you approach the tables. So let me pray and then let's respond. Father, thank you for the, the life of Romans 13. And how it challenges us and inspires us and yet also reminds us that we have to just return to you if we have any hope of living the Christian life. So God, may we do that even in this response. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.